We are in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42, continuing on in the series, The Giver Gets the Glory. It's page 911 if you're using a pew Bible this morning. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. It was an incredible transition from utter despair to great gladness that we find in Acts chapter 2. Just six weeks or so previous to this, the bottom had fallen out for the disciples. The one who they had followed, the one who they had believed was the hope of Israel, had been crucified and he was gone. And, and they were going about those couple of days after his crucifixion trying to pick up the pieces. Can you, can you imagine what that was like? These who had left everything to follow him, left jobs, left homes. What do they do? You, you have to get in the midst of that despair, really, to understand the contrast now as we come to Acts chapter 2. And we begin to see how their lives were utterly transformed in those few short weeks. We have spent now this the third Sunday in this text. I, I, I'm going to move on from here after today. But I, I want to stay here one more week. Let me remind you of the progression as we've been in this text. We've, we've talked about that gladness that came to them. A gladness that was rooted, it was rooted in the fact that they had found safety. They went from utter despair and, and utter vulnerability when Jesus was crucified. They probably had never felt more vulnerable in all of their lives to a place of incredible safety. Not, not because the circumstances around them were safe. They were anything but that. It was not a good thing at that point to be a follower of this Christ. But they found a safety and a security that caused gladness to spill out of them. And that security was rooted in the fact that they had found an answer for their sin. In fact, what it says in Acts chapter 2, just before we come to this text is after Peter on the day of Pentecost is preaching to the people. They say, what, what should we do? What, what do we do? And, G, and, and Peter's response to them is, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins that you may receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Forgiveness. The, the, the freedom and the safety that they found was a safety in the midst of great danger but a secureness because their sins 
had been forgiven. They had been welcomed back into the presence of a holy God. And so what Acts chapter 2 is about is about them learning more about that gladness and that reality of safety and, and just daily glorying in that safety. And that's what we pick up in Acts chapter 2. And we find that, um, that it, it happened in four different ways. This, this, uh, stoking of the joy. Uh, it was, it was increased day by day among these people as they did four things. They, they, uh, spent time devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, it says, to the breaking of bread, which, uh, was was eating together, but at the end of that meal, they would celebrate the Lord's Supper, and then finally, prayers. And so we've been walking through this. We've broken it down and been walking through each of those particular things. And um, last week, we we looked at the, uh, the first week, I should say, we looked at the first two, and those first two um, were the apostles' teaching and fellowship. So let me remind you a few of the things that we talked about there, about the apostles' teaching and fellowship, and how that stoked their joy, how that caused them in the midst, again, don't, don't minimize this, in the midst of great danger, being in Jerusalem at this time, their leader had just been crucified. They felt more secure than they'd ever felt in their lives, safer than they'd ever felt in their lives. The scripture says they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with the general people, not the religious leaders, but the people, the grassroots. That's what was happening. So what was it about the apostles' teaching and fellowship that that so stoked this joy and increased this joy? Um, one of the things I think we said, and I think you want, we want to go back and be reminded of, because it's foundational to all the rest, is that these people could not get enough of the apostles' teaching. Now, remember, they didn't have the New Testament. They have the Bible as we had it. They had the Old Testament scriptures, but not the New Testament, not the Bible as we would. And so the apostles' teaching today is the New Testament scriptures. That was what they were teaching about as well as the old. They were, they were showing how this was one story. They were showing how the Old Testament was not one story and the New Testament another, but, but what, what the Bible is is about it being one story. The story of how God was going to send a savior. And one of the things we talk about a lot here, and it's so important to understand that this, this book is about Jesus. If you try to read this book, but you don't know the theme of this book, that all of it points to Christ, you won't be able to read it very well. But when you start to see that everything in this book is about Jesus and points to him, it, it changes how you read it and how you see it. And that's exactly what was happening for these disciples. I want you to turn, and you have in the past, if you have your Bibles, to Luke, the last chapter of Luke, because you understand and realize that Luke wrote Acts. So Luke finished Acts, the book of Acts, or excuse me, the book of Luke, his gospel, and then he began to write the book of Acts, which was the story of the church and the, the, the first um, days of the church. 
But it's incredible the connection between Luke chapter 24 and now as we're in Acts chapter 2. We've made this, uh, we've made this connection, but I want to keep making it because it's so powerful. In, in Luke chapter 24, remember the story now, and we talked about this two weeks ago. Jesus is, has, is risen from the dead. There are two disciples that are walking on the road to Emmaus, and all of a sudden, there's a, a person comes up and joins them, and it's Jesus, but they don't recognize him. They don't know who it is. And as Jesus walks with them, this is what it says he, he did. It says in verse 27, and beginning with Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible, and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all of the scriptures, Old Testament scriptures, the things concerning himself. Why do we say this book is about Jesus? Because that's exactly what Jesus would say. That's what he did. As he walked with them, he just took the Old Testament scriptures and opened them up to these disciples as they walked along and told them how this story and this story and this story pointed to him, pointed to him. They, it was all concerning him, this Jesus. Now, at this point, they didn't know he was Jesus. He was just somebody who they were amazed as they as they listened to him. And in fact, the way they described it, it says later was, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Did not our hearts burn? As, as they began to see the connections, they began to see how the Old Testament came together and how it pointed to the one that they had fallen. There's had to be lots of questions in that. Uh, I don't know whether they asked questions or whether he just talked. We don't know how that all went. But the amazing thing is that, that he just unfolded it. So, so the point we made now is, is that as the New Testament church comes into being, as those believers are in the upper room where Jesus told them to go, uh, and and wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit to be given to the church, it says they just devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So what teaching? I think some of these things. Some of the things that Jesus had told those two certainly were a part of that. It might have been the basic outline of what they continually heard these apostles now unfolding to them. They didn't have the New Testament. They They were writing the New Testament, really, in a sense, there. And, and they were unfolding it and they couldn't get enough because why? Because their hearts were burning as they saw that and, and they, they, they realized the connections. You can just imagine what it was like for them. It was putting solidity underneath them that, that this wasn't the worst event that had ever happened, the death of their savior, but in fact was what was planned all along. In fact, Peter, as he comes and speaks, says that. The death of Jesus was central to all the Old Testament taught. Can't you just imagine how that daily just strengthened them? I believe that's the way it's to be for the church. I I think the church must be strengthened by that, by the apostles' teaching, by the Scripture. I hope when we sing songs like we sang this morning that, that as you sing those, that scripture comes to your mind about them. I hope we're singing truths that are bleeding scripture to us. 
And, and if there are times when something doesn't seem right that we're singing, that, that there's something that catches us when we think of scripture, it doesn't fit. I think that's the kind of thing scripture does. It, it puts a solidity under us, a huge solidity under us. And, and the scripture says in the New Testament, all the promises are yes in Christ. All the Old Testament promises come to their fulfillment in Christ. And what that produced then, what that teaching produced was certainly, was certainly the feeling of safety. We, we didn't go out on a limb here. I mean, we're right in the center of this about what God is doing. And, and their despair began to, to go down and their hope rose day by day. That's what scripture does. Scripture should strengthen us. I hope you know the reality of it strengthening your heart. But then it says, and fellowship. They, they, they moved on to fellowship, the, the, the teaching of the apostles and fellowship. Now, that fellowship was a powerful thing, I think, because it was rooted in truth. They marveled together at the truth. And there's something powerful when people come together around truth and begin to marvel about it. Look at Acts chapter 2 as we're just kind of laying the groundwork here to move on a little bit farther here this morning. But in Acts chapter 2, you get Peter's Peter's um, Pentecost sermon just before we come to what we're looking at right now. You find in, in verse 23 of Acts chapter 2, you, you see the way Peter declares it. He's, he's telling these people, because these people are in Jerusalem and they see these disciples and they see what's going on. And, and what they heard was that as these disciples spoke, there were people in Jerusalem from, from all different backgrounds, different languages. And all of a sudden they hear the message in their own language and they think, what are we to make of this? Are these people mad? And then Peter goes on to say, no, no, they're not mad. They're filled with the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God has come. And then he goes on to tell them some things about Jesus. And this is the way he says it in verse 23. This Jesus, this Jesus, the one you crucified and was killed by lawless men, it said. God raised him from the dead. He talks about the resurrection. So what they began to do, you see what was happening is they were just, coming around one another with this truth, just marveling, marveling at how Jesus was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. There is something powerful about that kind of fellowship. When you are united around truth like that, we live in an interesting age today. We live in an age today that would say the opposite to us if we're not careful. We live in an age even that has infiltrated the church that says to you, be careful about doctrine. Doctrine divides. Just worship together. You won't be able to worship together if you start talking too much about doctrine because it will divide you. And I believe that certainly is not of God because the thing that caused their fellowship to be so powerful here was the truth, was the apostles' teaching and having their hearts burn as they began to see those truths connect. 
And I believe with all of my heart that the deepest fellowship and the the most passionate worship always flows out of truth. It must flow out of truth. Otherwise, it can be very dangerous. We hear a lot about worship today in the church. Let's, Let's worship, but be careful. Scripture says, worship God in spirit and truth. And truth always needs to lead. We need to be passionate. There is much to be passionate about. But let truth stir your passion. Let truth stir your passion. That's exactly the picture I think we get in the, in the New Testament. That's the way the church began. Their fellowship, their worship, all of that was was foundational under it was truth was the apostles teaching listen to the listen to that new song that we sang today let me let me illustrate this to you um, i asked matthew um, to get that song ready and and we will sing that song much here we'll learn it and we'll sing it i i get those opportunities to influence that but it it it, it is a powerful song now listen listen to a couple of reasons why this is a song we will continue to sing there's a line in there that says those he saves are his delight those he saves are his delight he will hold me fast that's the that's the chorus that's scriptural that's scriptural we came to the lord's supper last week and if you remember at the end of the lord's supper i made I shared two scriptures. The two scriptures I shared was, the first scripture is, scripture that comes out of the book of Isaiah, where it says, it was the will of the Father to crush the Son. Isaiah chapter 53, the suffering servant um, passage out of Isaiah, which points to Christ. Um, it, It says, it was the will of the Father to crush the Son. So I think we can say, it pleased the Father in one way, in one dimension, to crush the Son. I think that's scriptural. It it pleased the Father to crush the Son. Then you go to the New Testament, Jesus, and there's a text that says in Hebrews, for the joy set before him, he, Jesus, endured the cross. Now you take that first text and it seems harsh, doesn't it? Pleased? I mean, I'm careful. I say that reverently, but I think it's true. It, if it's his will, there is a portion of his will that pleases him. So it pleased the Father to crush the Son. But if that's all you know, it's not all of what Scripture teaches. Because it says in the New Testament, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. I think... Well, I know this. I know this. It's the same God. One God, not two gods, one God. If you see the Father, you see the Son. If you see the Son, you see the Father. One God, three persons, a trinity. So it's one God. I know that. And I think this, that the joy, the same joy that the Father had in crushing the Son is the joy the Son had in enduring the cross. And it goes back to this. Those he saves are his delight. It has to do with the fact that that joy was rooted in the delight of saving a people. Of 
providing a way that God could forgive our sin. He delighted. He delighted even to crush his son so that it could happen. You see, that's truth. When you start to see truth, it, it strengthens us. We, we sing differently, I hope. And then you go down to another line in that song that says this, justice has been satisfied. It's another song, word you say, or another line you sang in that song. Justice has been satisfied. You see, God had to crush the son so that his righteousness could be upheld. He couldn't just sweep it under the carpet. He couldn't just say it didn't happen. We'll just forget about that and go on. Let bygones be bygones. God could not still be God and do that. And so his justice is what had to be satisfied. And so the delight that the father had was that his justice could be, de- could be satisfied, his holiness could be upheld, and at the same time he could forgive a people. And then you flip that and you start to think that this God is a just God. And therefore, a broader dimension of that is because he's a just God. The very justice that would, would at one level, undo us because he will not let sin go unpaid for. That ultimately all sin will be paid for either in the son or in those who sin, who are outside the son. But if we're in the Son, the same justice is our hope. That a God who is just would not subject those to judgment for whom their sin has been justly paid for in Christ. It's the hope of the gospel. So you see, truth, truth causes great passion to flow out. Not just kind of a hope so that God will be kind. That God will love me. And the problem with love is it has so many different definitions. But when you get a biblical definition of love, it creates a safety. And I think that's exactly what happened to these disciples. As they heard the apostles' teaching, as they heard it, their hearts were strengthened and joy flowed out of that. Listen to Romans. This would be the apostles' teaching. Maybe something like this got taught to them. But in Romans, Paul writes, God put forward Jesus as a propitiation, as a, as, as a one who would take the wrath meant for us because of our sin. He would turn it away. So God put forward Jesus as a propitiation so that he might be just and justifier of those who have faith in Christ. Talking about the justice of God. He could continue to be just because sin had been paid for, but he also could be the justifier of those who had sinned. Those are the kinds of things, I think, that cause passionate fellowship and worship to flow. And then we talked about the breaking of bread. I'm not going to spend a lot of time there because I want to get on to the last. But last week, as we had the breaking of bread, I told you at the end I used those texts. But... but they would share a meal together. They'd have fellowship together. They'd share a meal together. Probably around those tables as they ate together, they talked about what the apostles had been teaching them and how their hearts were burning and how how wonderful it was to see all of this and, and new insights and all of that about Old Testament texts. I'm sure that happened among the disciples in those early days. 
And, and then at the end of that meal, they would take the bread. Someone would take the bread and he would break it and he would pass it around. And, and all of them knew what was happening then. All of them knew what that represented, the broken body of Christ. Then he would take the cup he would bless it and he would pass it as Jesus had done on the night before he was betrayed. And they would see a picture again of how what had created the depths of despair for them now was their greatest joy, the death of Christ. The book of Hebrews says, Jesus came as a man, fully man, fully God. And the scripture says plainly, he came to die. You know that the apostles talked about that a lot. The reason Jesus came was to die, to die for the sins of those he delighted to save. And so they would see it pictured. Look at, look at again at Luke chapter 24. Again, back to this passage, and then we're going to move on to prayers. But here is what happened. Remember I told you the story, beginning with Moses, Jesus is walking with these two disciples. He's telling them all this stuff, yet they still don't recognize him. So then they, they say, well, it's too late. It's too late. You need to stay with us tonight. And so, so they get Jesus to stay with them, and, and he's going to spend the night with them. But before they retire, they eat together. And the scripture says this, when he was at the table with them, Jesus When he was at the table with them, at the end of the meal, I suspect, he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them. And then it says this, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Their eyes were opened and they recognized him. That's a powerful text. And that's what the Lord's Supper should do for us every time we come. We do it in remembrance of Him. We, we see Jesus anew and afresh. We're reminded anew and afresh that He came to die. And His delight was to come to die. His joy was to come to die. Just as it was the joy of the Father to send Him to die. That He might save a people. Can you, can you just imagine how powerful that was? Now, all of that was happening. All of that was happening in the midst of great danger around them. They didn't know what the future held. Um, the, the religious authorities were not happy. They just crucified Jesus. They were increasingly unhappy, as we read in the book of Acts, when people started to talk about resurrection um, there, were, there were plots to try to put down this insurrection that was happening. So it wasn't that they were safe, but they were safe. They knew they were safe because the ultimate issue of life had been cared for. Their sin was forgiven. And that's really what the core of Christianity is about. Christianity is about a way that our sin can be forgiven and not held against us. If, if you don't know that, if that's not where you begin with Christianity, you, you can't understand any of the rest of it. It's about that. And that's what was happening here in the book of Acts, chapter 2. So then it says, it goes on, and it, it begins to 
talk about one more thing that we want to talk about this morning, and that is that they, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. They prayed. They prayed. Look at the order again. It's, it's not insignificant, the order of this. We've been hammering this, but it, again, it isn't prayers first, and then apostles' teaching. It is apostles' teaching and leads them to pray. Now, there's a reason for that. Again, it's a, it's a, it's a huge thing to see. Let me take you there, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be done here this morning. You have to remember that these first Jewish believers, primarily Jewish believers here, in Acts chapter 2, later, later the, 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 in the book of Acts, it'll go to the Gentiles, but these were Jewish people who were very familiar with the Old Testament, for the most part, familiar with the tabernacle, which the children of Israel, as they wandered, had. They would set up the tabernacle and later the temple that was built in Jerusalem. And they were very aware of how meticulously the temple and the tabernacle were laid out. The temple and the tabernacle was divided into different uh, rooms. This morning, uh, you who have children, if you have children upstairs, what they're talking about today is the tabernacle. It's interesting, as I was I was comparing notes with my wife last night as they were going to have, preparing for children's church, they were talking about the tabernacle, so you may be able to discuss this with them. But the tabernacle was divided into various areas. There was a large outer courtyard, which uh, everyone, including Gentiles, could be in, an outer courtyard. Then you would come a little closer, and there was a courtyard for Jewish women to be in. Part of the tabernacle temple was a place for Jewish women to be. Then there was another special courtyard for Jewish men to be in. And then there was a courtyard that only priests could go in and offer sacrifices. And then, and then you entered in really to the temple building itself. And as you entered into the temple building, there was a holy place. And in the holy place, the priests would go, just the priests, and they would offer incense there. And then beyond that was a veil that hung. And on the other side of that veil was what was called the Holy of Holies, the the place that represented where God dwelt among the people in the Holy of Holies. There were lots of things, or various things in the Holy of Holies. We don't have time to go into all of that. But the significance of that is that's where God dwelt with the people. And the people knew that. They'd been taught that. Their catechism, whatever they had, taught them that. And in the Holy of Holies, the only one who could go into the Holy of Holies was the high priest once a year. And that was after an elaborate kind of ceremonial cleansing. He could go in and he could, he could minister around the Holy of Holies. He could never sit down, but he, there was no place to sit. He would minister, he would do his thing, and then he would come out, hopefully, Unless, unless he did something that he shouldn't do in there. Then, the way they cared for that is there was a rope tied around his leg. And, and they didn't dare anyone to get him. No one could go in except the high priest once a year. They would just drag him out of the Holy of Holies. That was their understanding. In the Old Testament, that's what the Old Testament taught of how you approach God. So that was what was built into their minds. Now, now I want you to listen to me and listen to what it says in the book of Hebrews chapter 10. All of that in mind, 
Hebrews chapter 10, the part of the text was up on the screen, but just listen to this. This is what it says. Therefore, brothers, and in fact, Hebrews, remember, we spent weeks, months in Hebrews, years in Hebrews. Hebrews is written primarily to a Jewish people. It says this, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, remember, the curtain in the Holy of Holies. By, by the way, many of you will remember that when Jesus died on the cross, one of the things that happened is what? That curtain was rent from top to bottom. It was torn. The moment of his death, the curtain was rent in two. That's the curtain. But here it says, was opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest Over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now you think about that. Put yourself in that context. What they knew about approaching God was all of this tabernacle stuff and temple stuff. And now all of a sudden, because of what is being taught by the apostles, the apostles' teaching is telling them what that meant. Part of what they heard was what that meant. What did it mean? What does it mean in this text when it says, through the curtain that is his flesh? You see, that was all a picture. And you can imagine how, how carefully those people, the closer they got to the Holy of Holies, were. They had no doubt in their mind, God was holy. He was holy. And you better be careful as you approach him. And only certain ones can get right up next to him, and only one once a year. And now, now it's telling them what that meant. What that meant. There, there's still, in one sense, is one who gets close to him, like the high priest, but this high priest is Jesus. And the, the symbolism is his flesh. His flesh tore that barrier in two. His flesh was torn. The, the, the veil in the temple was torn. We have access. You see how differently now these disciples began to see approaching God? I think they still did it reverently. I think they still did it carefully. But they all of a sudden realize on the basis of what Jesus has done, not only are we safe, but it is safe to get close to God. It is safe. And so we're going to spend lots of time being close. We're going to pray. We have access like we've never had access before. And their prayers float out of that. Their prayers float out of that. The best way, the best way I can say it is this. God is both sovereign. They knew that. They knew he was God. He was sovereign. He's the king. There's nothing above him. He's all powerful. He's holy. He's majestic. All of that. But he's also safe. They didn't have to 
pull down his sovereignty. They didn't have to make him less than who he was. That's what the gospel is. God, God doesn't become less than God and somehow wink at our sin and be less holy so that he can allow us into his presence. But he's still sovereign. But, but along with being sovereign, which was drilled into their hearts and their heads, he also is safe. He is safe and we are safe in his presence. That is the glory of the gospel. The scripture says we are to come boldly into his presence. Boldly, not not forgetting he's sovereign, but the boldness comes from the fact that he is safe and his very sovereignty orchestrated the way in which it could be safe. His very sovereignty in that he fulfilled and accomplished the purpose of crushing his son so that it would be safe. You see how all that stuff was just exploding for the disciples? It was just exploding again and again and again and again, and they were reveling in that safety. In fact, what it did, this is the amazing thing. We're going to close with this. We're going to sing that song again that we are learning today. But the amazing thing in the text, I want you to turn there with me if you have, still have your Bibles. And let me, let me point this out of what their prayers consisted of. Let me read it to you of, of what I think their prayers consist of in Acts chapter 4 because this is the first recorded prayer that we have. Turn there with me. Let me read it and then we're going to sing together. It says there in this text in chapter 4, we talked about it the first week, but here, here we have um, Peter and uh, John who are in trouble with the authorities. I said it was stained. I mean, they, they knew they were safe, but they were in dangerous territory. Safety in the midst of danger. Safety because their sins were forgiven. But the, the danger was Peter and John were, were arrested. But the authorities found nothing to hold them in these early days of the church. And so they released them and they sent them back to the disciples. And when they came back, the believers, it says, prayed. This is the first recorded prayer in the book of Acts. And listen to what it says and how they pray. It says, when they, had, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord. And had not brought God down because they could come into his presence. They, they knew they still needed him to be God. Sovereign God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Okay, they, they, they spend a bunch of time just reaffirming the sovereignty of their God. They have no less a God now that they're coming boldly before. You see that? Their safety has nothing to do with bringing God down in any way, shape, or form. He's still the God of the Old Testament because the same God in the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. But then they pray, and now, Lord, look upon their threats And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness 
while you stretch out your hand to heal and it goes on. But their prayer is that, that God would allow them to be bold. That they would have boldness to declare Christ, declare the Messiah, to talk about his resurrection. You see, they were safe in the midst of some very unsafe circumstances. You don't pray for boldness if there's not danger. But my contention, and I think the contention of Scripture is that 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 boldness comes in the face of dangerous circumstances when you know you're safe. Those disciples knew that they were safe, ultimately safe. Their sins had been forgiven. That God was a God who had accomplished that. And their boldness flowed out of that safety. I pray the same for us as a church and as a body. I, I pray that we will have a boldness. I pray that God will so empower us by his spirit to be bold, not obnoxious. Don't, don't hear that wrong, but to be bold, to boldly declare the message that the world is crying to hear. They don't know it always, but the message that there is a safe place and that safe place is in Christ. I hope that God will help us even this Easter season to declare it. Let's pray and then we're going to sing together. Father, I pray this morning that that you will help us. Help us to have that kind of boldness, Lord. Help us to have it flow out of even what we're going to sing in just a moment here as we're going to reaffirm the truth of what the scripture teaches, Lord, that, that you are our safety. You are our refuge. You are our keeper. You are our protector. Lord, we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me. We want to sing this song one more time together. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, Christ will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold, He must hold me fast. He will hold me fast, He will hold me fast, for my Savior loves me so, He will hold me fast. Those he saves are his delight, Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. You'd not let my soul be lost, his promises shall last. But for my faith at such a cost, He 